welcome to the More Than Hearers podcast. I'm Orion Williams. I'm here with our host, Peter Willis. Uh, we had a pretty fun conversation. This uh, Romans chapter three. Uh, Peter, how would you describe like a theme for this this chapter? You know, uh, we're coming on the heels of chapter one and two, where Paul's setting up the bad news so he can build into the good news, and he's going to kind of hit the pinnacle of the bad news with Romans chapter three of um, how righteous is God, and therefore how unrighteous are we. But the cool thing is, he's going to end chapter three with. Um, our righteousness or our justification comes through faith. Here we go, Romans 3. Um, if you're joining us for the first time and you're listening and you go, oh, Romans 3, let me get out my Bible and flip to it, I want to encourage you to maybe do that, but maybe not do that. I've shared in previous episodes that Romans is this book. It builds on itself. It starts out in almost a really difficult place. And as we get into chapter 3, it's finally going to start to show glimpses of resolving that difficulty. But if you just pick it up in 3, 3 has a lot of standing on top of 1 and 2 that it does. And so if you if you just skip ahead and you start Romans 3 and you go, oh, this is good stuff, it, it may be, but it, there's so much more richness if you get Romans 1 and Romans 2 under your belt. So I would caution you, maybe caution's a little strong, challenge you to stop. Go back and find Romans 1 and 2. Start with those and then catch up with us here in Romans 3 because it's good stuff. Romans chapter 1, just as a review, just opens with Paul's greeting to this church he loves dearly and is going through some stuff uh, between um, Jewish converts to the way or to Christianity and these Gentile converts to Christianity and some friction between them. And it's going to rear up in a couple of these chapters as we go along. And then he just lays out this case for God. He says, God's evident to everyone in everything so that man's without excuse. But because man's refused to acknowledge God, God's given man over to everything man can come up with. And um, then into chapter 2 it goes, if you think all those people who come up with these things are terrible, well, you're judgmental. (laughs) And being judgmental is bad too. And and, and he ends chapter 2, or we ended chapter 2 with this whole discussion of circumcision, of uh, this covenant God had with his people that was this physical outward sign of I'm, I belong to God. And, and Paul ends chapter 2 with um, circumcision has no value if you don't live according to what God wants you to live to. And living according to God without being circumcised is just like being circumcised in the first place. And so we pick up chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And Paul says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Well, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And that's that reference to the law, the law that was given to Moses up on the mountain, inscribed on the tablets were the Ten Commandments, as well as the rules for washing and cleansing and building of the tabernacle and all these things. Yeah, the this whole, not just the Ten Commandments. It's con, you know, it's so much more than that. A lot of people think of, uh, of the law as just being the Ten, but without the ordinances and the statutes that went along with it, there wouldn't have been any way to understand really how to keep the Ten. It's kind of the, the Ten were the, the, the foundational uh, the, the principles, but then the rest of it taught how to live those. Right. Laws. What what is 
what do they look like? Yes. How are they? How do they? The details, if you will. How do they flesh out in day to day life? Right. In the desert or in Israel or wherever it, wherever it might be. Um, when you look at the Levitical law, if you look at the book of Leviticus, the ten are in there. They show up originally in Exodus, but they're again they're repeated in Leviticus. It's like half of a half of a chapter of a book that's really long. The ten really is that foundational piece, and there's so much more to it. But it all proceeded from the mouth of God. Yes, and so that's when Paul says uh, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God in verse two. That's what he's referencing. He's not necessarily referencing. Um, some words we've never heard that only Jews have heard. It's, it's the law that we've read and that we understand. So moving into verse 3. What if some, some Jews, were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Paul's asking a lot of rhetorical questions. He's, as he gets through this, he's asking questions that somebody listening to what he's saying might ask. And he's addressing them before they can even get thrown back at him. So he goes, what if some were unfaithful? Would their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being be a liar. As it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. It comes out of Psalm 51, and he says in verse um, verse 5, he goes, But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And Paul, in parentheses, goes, I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, and so therefore increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? He says, their condemnation is just. So Paul hits all these circular arguments of, um, if... Our unrighteousness makes God look more righteousness. So by us doing wrong, we make God look all the better. Then why are we condemned for doing wrong? We're making God look good. Like that's some honorable thing? Isn't that hilarious? That I mean, It's a look, stupid argument. I know that we have plenty of stupid arguments. Every time we justify something, we're, we're giving a stupid argument for something we know is wrong. It's just... When we're, you know, when we're in our kind of holier than thou, almost, uh, we're, we're studying the Bible, so we have the our our good, uh, you know, our good mind, our good heart on, and we're we're listening to the word, and then we almost get like judgy and like, oh, how silly people would be for saying that, but we we've all said these things ourselves. And we've all, any of you are believers, and you have a friend or an acquaintance who's a non-believer. These arguments come up. Of God made me this way, then why does he hold it against me? Right. It's like you're picking at things that don't need to be picked at. We're all created, we're all sinful beings. Um, it's going to get referenced actually uh, sort of in this chapter as it is. Uh, but that doesn't give us an excuse to just continue to live sinfully. It's not God's fault. No, the the hilarious patheticness of this is that it's, it's used as... Uh, it's like not a crutch. It's it's more. It's like a like a pedestal. Like, yay me! I made God look more righteous because of the contrast between His righteousness and my sin. Like, oh, high fives all around! I, I it's just so stupid to me. I mean, I, I can't. I like marvel at how stupid the argument is. But again, it's not. It's not a stupid argument in in the sense that Paul's bringing up a stupid argument. Like he didn't conceive this argument. This is. 
the arguments of men. This is the hearts of men come up with these arguments to justify our behavior. I, I used um, in a previous episode on one of these other chapters. I used a sports reference or analogy, um, and I almost come up with another one in this case where it's like um, take the a really good team in a particular sport. I don't have any reference because I don't follow sports that close, and they play a really bad team, and they beat the living tar out of them. It's not like the bad team walks away going, yeah, we made the good team look good. <laughs> no, they walk away like, we stink. We're, we're losers. We're the worst <laughs> team. And that's Paul's trying to get out of, you can't justify your sin by saying it makes God look less sinful. That's dumb. Yes. You still stink. So, um, And it's so funny, this, this, verse, this verse 8 piece um, there's a few of these that go on in Romans where there's a parenthetical reference in the middle of a statement or a question. And so I like to read them in order, removing the parenthetical reference, and we'll come back to it. Don't write me letters. Don't send me emails saying I took words out of the Bible. I'm literally doing it just to make the question fit together the way it was written, and we can address the parenthetical reference in the middle of it. So verse 8 says, Why not say, let us do evil that good may result? And in the middle of that, the parenthetical references, Paul says, is some slanderously claim that we say. Paul's writing about something that's actively going on. People are going around and, and saying, Paul and those guys are teaching that, you know, we got we to gotta do worse so that God's grace looks bigger. And Paul goes, we're not saying that. That's, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. The reality is, is our sin does elevate God or make God look above us, but it should give us something to desire. It should give us a desire for righteousness. It should point out to us how lost we are in contrast to where we should be. And that's what we talked about, how difficult chapter one was and how difficult chapter two was. And really the first half of chapter three continues to be. Paul's painting a picture here of this is how far we are from God. Understand how far away we are. And that's not an excuse to stay there. Right. It's a guess how good the news really is. Because truth of our condition is so bad that the good news is amazing news. And so he's just painting this picture. And I don't want you to get stuck here. No, I don't want to get stuck here. If you decide to quit now, you're like, that's it. Roman stinks and I'm done. You have let go at the wrong point because the story's going to turn. And get really good. There's a you touched on it, and I just want to kind of bring up the flip side of it is that some people they have an attitude of the, because uh, Bible says all have fallen short. Um, yeah, like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, but this idea that because we have fallen short, uh, well, let's just give up now. Like, no, no, like, I mean, I've heard this in in church. I've heard this in uh, adult Sunday school classes where people say, uh, we, you can't be, you can't not sin. You're going to sin. It's like, that's not the attitude that Jesus ever asks us to have. We all know that we have sinned. We know he's a covering for that sin. But he never says, you are going to sin again. In fact, he calls us to be perfect as he is perfect. He set the bar very high. We take that bar and we, 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 we say, well, I can never make you know, the bar, so why try? It's like, don't, don't give up before you start. Jesus is calling us to a high calling. He wants us to be as, he wants us to be as good as he is.
Yeah, and and if if we start to grasp the truth of our salvation, and believe me, I get I get glimpses here and there, but I get off track all the time. I think we all get off track. Um, but that's not an again. It's not an excuse. It's not a, a reason to throw up your hands. But if you understand how good the news really is, how lost you really are, and how amazing it is that God bailed us out, it should drive in you a desire to be closer to Him, to to be better at this. I don't want to say be a better Christian because that what's a good Christian anyway? We're going to get into it here as we move forward in Romans three. It's going to answer that right there. Um, But, but this idea of like you referenced Orion, be holy as I am holy, man, be perfect as I am perfect. Uh, You know, the story of the Christian faith is we were incapable of meeting God's standard. And so God came to us. And gave us an avenue to him instead of us trying to earn our way there. Nothing we're called to do as believers is what gets us in. Getting us in means once we're in, once we've surrendered to Jesus as Lord, once he's Lord of our lives, there's stuff to do. There's a lot of work to do. But it starts with just surrendering. That's right. You don't have to do all that stuff to get in. No. But once you're in, there's... I don't want to say dues because that sounds awful, but um, but there's yeah. there's a life we're called to. We're called to more than this, and the Bible says we're not of this world. We can't continue to live as part of this world. So, with all that said, the Bible is going to tell us that we can't. Okay. So here we go. <laughs> kind of a weird place to go with it. But verse nine. What shall we conclude then? And I just want to point this out because it's going to come up so many times more. And it's already come up a couple times in this chapter. As I've studied Romans, I love this phrase and various versions of this phrase. Paul will say, what shall we say then? Or what shall we conclude then? He keeps asking the question of, if this, then what? What? What's our response to it? And so he says, you know, all of these things about... Well, people would say we should keep looking bad to make God look better and and we should keep doing all of these things. Or um, He goes, what should we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Well, not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Verse 10, as it is written, and he's going to give off 5, 6, 8 Old Testament scripture references. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. He goes on to say in verse 13, Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God in their eyes. He has just hit Psalms and Isaiah, and he is just pounding it down. Even a little bit of Ecclesiastes. He goes, he goes from, from the, the prophets of old, for even from Solomon's wisdom, he goes, it's been said all along, there is no one. It's not that, sorry, I'm going to cut you off, but there, it's not that the Gentiles are incapable of meeting God. There is no one. One. That's all I was going to say is that this is the context is 
uh, about Jews and the circumcision, and he's quoting that in reference to the the, the Jewish listeners yeah. there. Because yeah. remember, again, there's that that rift or that break that's going on in this church in Rome of, well, the Jewish Christians are better because we have the law. Well, Gentile Christians are better because we came apart from the law. Well, I'm better. And Paul goes, nope, nobody, none righteous, right. not one, forget it. Saul, or Saul, wow. <laughs> he says, um, Solomon said it. He says, David said it. Isaiah said it. Who more do you need to say it? Because God said it. There's no one righteous. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And I love that verse because a lot of us who've come up in church have heard that the law is just to point us to Christ. And you go, well, okay, cool. Where is that? And there's a piece of it right here. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. It's there to make us aware of how far apart from God we are. And this is where Romans starts to turn a corner. Verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Verse 23 is one of the classics of Christianity. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Do you get that? That's just too good. Apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify, verse 21. It says, separate from the law, the law is pointing to something. The law isn't the end. The law isn't what brings righteousness. He covered it in the verse before. The law just shows us how sinful we are. This righteousness, this righteousness we have access to, that we get to grasp, this being made right, this way of being right, righteousness, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned, verse 23. There's nobody special. But verse 24 All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Stop there for a minute. Do you understand that he was just referencing the law? The law said that for sin, a sacrifice had to be made to atone for that sin. And Paul goes, look, God recognized there were only so many perfect lambs. He keeps making them. I mean, they keep happening, but we're going to keep killing them. Under this law system, there had to be a sacrifice for sins. And God goes, fine, have a perfect lamb, have mine. 
have the best I have, and let's let that be a sacrifice for atonement. If you study Hebrews, Hebrews covers this super well. It's really neat because what happened uh, under the the sacrificial system is a lamb, a literal lamb, a sheep, bat, a perfect one, had to be sacrificed for sin. It got sacrificed, killed, cooked, the blood was spilled, and that was a covering for your sin. But then that lamb was consumed and gone. You couldn't come back next year to the temple with your sin and go, that lamb over there, that's the one, uh, that's my sacrifice. I my sins go with that one. That lamb's not here anymore. It left. Whereas with Christ, because he was sacrificed for our sins, but still is there, we continue to grasp and to identify with that sacrifice because it's not dead, like the literal sheeps were put to death. Christ was put to death, but he rose again. That's that defeat of sin and death. It's why his sacrifice covered sins past, present, and future. Amen. Because the sacrifice itself doesn't ever pass away. It, we continue to get to participate in it. It's cool stuff. I, I get, you can't see my face, but I get giddy about this where the pieces of our faith start to plug in and come together. You, know, you start making a puzzle and you lay out the border and you kind of get, the border's easy to get because it doesn't matter if it matches the picture. The pieces fit and they have a straight line or they don't. But then when you start to fill in the middle and you're like, oh, there's, there's the head of the tiger. And, oh, ah, we got the tail section together. Stuff like this is where the Old Testament and the New Testament start to come together and they intermix and the pieces fit. So many people, I think, get caught up in the law was wiped out, done away with, everything in the Old Testament, and we got a do-over starting of the book of Matthew. And, and we've said it, it gets said in church all the time that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And this is the evidence of that, that it's still a sacrifice. Sin demanded a sacrifice. It continues to demand a sacrifice. It's just the sacrifice we get to participate in as Christians is Christ who is not dead. Anyway, like I said, I get really worked up on it because it's fun for me. You should. So God presented Christ, I'm going to read it again, 25, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Verse 27. Where then is boasting? Paul goes, that's easy. It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And this is what I was talking about earlier. To get in, to get access, it does not require action other than I believe in God and I'm submitting myself to him. You don't have to go get baptized. You don't have to go to church on Saturdays or Sundays or the third Tuesday of every odd-numbered month or whatever it might be. There's no piece of that. That's You don't have to change your haircut. You don't have to change your clothes style. You don't have to change your music. You don't have to do anything. You come by faith. God, you are real. Jesus was real. Newsflash, if you didn't know this or not, there's no debate about the historical Jesus of Nazareth. There's more evidence of him existing on this planet 2,000-ish years ago than we have evidence of the existence of Julius Caesar. We know there was a Jesus of Nazareth. We know 
historical, non-biblical evidence that he existed, that he was crucified on a cross and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. History does not debate these things. It's what happens after that, what happened three days later that history gets a little sideways on but hasn't been able to prove any different of he rose from the grave, is not there, cannot be found there, walked and talked amongst his disciples for uh, several, I think like 30 or 40 days after I lose track and I get my day numbers crossed up, was seen by hundreds of people and then ascended into heaven, the Bible says. And he sits at the right hand of God where he intercedes on our behalf. You believe that? Paul says right here, that's faith enough for your justification and righteousness. That's super cool. You, you make uh, the sports references on occasion. And, I'm ready. Um, in this... Uh, the Super Bowl team, you don't even have to play in the Super Bowl, but if you're on the team that wins, you get the ring. If, if on the roster your position is left out, uh, you still get a ring. And that's what a great reference, man, because it's so true. Uh, you just got to identify with the right team in this case. And... It seems really, really simple laid out here. You're like, what do you mean it? How do you know we're just justified by faith, Paul? You're going to have to come back uh, the next episode for chapter four because he's going to explain how he knows that faith is enough. And it's a cool story. It's not even based in the New Testament. I mean, it's printed in the New Testament because it's Romans chapter four. But he's going to talk about this guy, Abraham. And every Jew who read this knows who Abraham is. Abraham is the father of, of the faith. He's the guy the initial promise came to. He's the guy who God said, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky. I'm going to make them outnumber the sand. And Abraham's like, really? I, I don't have any kids. I'm a hundred-ish. And my wife is really old. And God goes, no, it's, it's going to happen. And it happened. And through him, I, I think almost all of us know or have met at least one Jewish person in our lives. Yeah. Abraham's got a lot of descendants. I don't yes. know if you knew that or not. Like God's promise totally came true. And, and he's going to reference Abraham's faith is what God justified him by. And I think we miss it. I'm, I'm giving too much away. I'm going to do all of chapter 4 right now, and, and I don't want to. I want to save it because it's so good. Uh, let's finish up chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to chunk this whole paragraph together because I pulled out of it. And if I jump right back into it, it loses its punch. So back to verse 27. What then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Paul was the whole reason for the law is faith in God. Do, do Jews believe in who God said he was? Followed him through a desert. He sent a bunch of plagues on Egypt. I'm pretty sure they believed that God was who he said he was. And so that's faith. So then he gave the law and he said, this is what I want you to do. And they submitted to it. 
terribly, I'll grant you, but they submitted to it out of faith that God said, if you do this, then you will be my people and I will be your God. They could have been like, nah, you're not going to do that. That's not faith. They went, okay, you said you're going to do it. We're going to do our part. That's faith. God hadn't done it yet. That's all faith is. It's it's the evidence of things, or it's, it's the belief in things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. They were justified by their faith in God through the law. And as Gentiles were justified by faith apart from the law, the law it really is no longer necessary. What's necessary, what was always necessary is faith. Right. Whether the action of your faith was obedience to the law or the action of our faith is just surrender to Christ, it's faith. Uh, again, I'm giving away chapter 4. I don't want to give away chapter four. Um, it's it's a cool one. Uh, I want to really challenge you guys. Don't miss this stuff. It builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And it's if I'm the only one having fun here, it's no good. You got to have fun with me on this because it's for those of you who've been believers for any length of time. It's our faith coming to life. It's on paper lays out the step-by-step of how we got here with God. And when you see it for me, when I see it laid out like this, uh, just it stirs up in me faith. And that's what chapter 3 is calling us to. So come back next time for episode, uh, or the next episode. I was going to give it a number, but I don't know what number it's got. <laughs> it's just chapter 4. So come back next time for chapter 4. Look forward to seeing you. See you.